everyone. Good evening. Before we come to the preach word, if I can pray once more, and then we'll come to the word of God. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We praise you for your word. We thank you for the light that it is to us. Explains to us your promises. It tells us of how much you love us. It is demonstrated to us throughout your word. The great sacrifice that your son made for us on the cross. There are many of us here tonight. We know sins forgiven. We know that our eternal our eternal future is secure in the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, your Son. Lord, I do pray that as I go through what you've laid in my heart, that, Lord, you will be glorified, that, Lord, I will decrease and you will increase, and you'll receive all the glory that is due your holy and wonderful name. Amen. Amen. So in my attempts to study this psalm and looking at the commentaries on this psalm, uh, there's a bit of debate as to when it was that David penned this psalm, but the majority seemed to settle on the early days when David was in the court with Saul. And then eventually we have Saul being jealous. We find this in 1 Samuel chapter 18. We'll look at that in a second. And then ultimately Saul attempting to to be rid of David, uh, to kill David. And this psalm, uh, the title I've given for the sermon for this psalm, is Human Disaster and Holy Deliverance. Human Disaster and Holy Deliverance. I'm going to break it up into three. The first point for you will be warring words, verses 1 to 4. My second point is deep darkness, verses 5 and 6. And then finally, glorious God, verses 7 to 10. But first of all, let me just give you the context um, from which I believe David wrote this psalm. So you get a sense of the, the atmosphere for when David came to write the words. Chapter 18 of 1 Samuel says this in verse 7. So the woman sang and as they danced and said, Saul, King Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. Then Saul was very angry and the saying displeased him. And he said, they've ascribed to David ten thousands, but to me they have ascribed only thousands. Now what more can he have but the kingdom? So Saul eyed David from that day forward. In the following chapter, Saul says this. Now Saul spoke to Jonathan, his son, in verse 1 of chapter 19, and to all his servants. And we'll see throughout the psalm how it is not just a enemy, but enemies that David is dealing with. There are people who are conspiring against him. Now Saul spoke to Jonathan, his son, and to all his servants, that they should kill David. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted greatly in David. And then finally, chapter 20, we read this. We have the the final context, as it were, for the psalm. Verse 24 of chapter 20, Then David hid in the field, 
And when the new moon had come, the king sat down to eat the feast. Now the king sat on his seat, as at other times, on a seat by the wall. And Jonathan arose, and Abner sat by Saul's side. But David's place was empty. Nevertheless, Saul did not say anything that day, for he thought something has happened to him. He is unclean. Surely he is unclean. And it happened the next day, the second day of the month, that David's place was empty. And Saul said to Jonathan, his son, why has the son of Jesse, that is David, not come to eat either yesterday or today? So Jonathan answered Saul, David earnestly asked permission of me to go to Bethlehem. And he said, please let me go, for our family is a sacrifice in the city. My brother has commanded me to be there. And now if I have found favor in your eyes, please let me get away and see my brothers. Therefore, he has not come to the king's table. Then Saul's anger was aroused against Jonathan. And he said to him, you son of a perverse, rebellious woman, do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? But as long as the son of Jesse lives in the earth, you shall not be established, nor your kingdom. Now therefore send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. And Jonathan answered Saul, his father, and said to him, why should he be killed? What has he done? Then Saul cast a spear at him to kill him, by which Jonathan knew that it was determined by his father to kill David. And this is the atmosphere in which David writes this psalm. His king has turned his back on him. His desire is that he should be dead. Not only that, as we saw in chapter 19, he has told his servants, Saul's servants, I need you to be rid of David. I need you to kill David. And then David begins his psalm, and this is our first point, warring words. He begins his psalm like he does so often by crying out to God. And the situation seems dire when, in human terms, it's a disaster. There he was, David, this great general within Israel, a man of position, a man of power. He had shot to power. He had slain Goliath. He was a man who was renowned throughout Israel as we read about the songs that they sung about him. And what a fall. Now his king desires his death. Now Saul has commanded that the servants of him would kill David. There he is hiding in a field, waiting and looking over his back to see who may be following after him. But his reaction to this is to pray. Sammy Rutherford, a Scottish Puritan, in one of his letters, letter 31, said this, and when authority, king, court, and churchmen oppose the truth, what other armor have we but prayer and faith? And David begins like this, hear my voice, O God, in my meditation. It's something which I have been laboring over the last number of sermons that I have preached, not just here but elsewhere, is the need for prayer, especially when the situation is tough. We need, brothers and sisters, to have our own times of prayer before Almighty God, saying the same words as David, hear my voice, O God. And this 
brothers and sisters, is where we make our warfare. This, brothers and sisters, is where we have our battle. You see, David was now at war with his king. He was now at war with the servants. But rather than sharpening his own sword and bending his own bow, what he does is he descends to his knees and he asks the Lord to intervene. And brothers and sisters, this needs to be our attitude in every situation of life, especially when times are tough to pray. There was a man, a Puritan, another Puritan, David Dickinson. He was a, he was a fantastic preacher, a phenomenal orator. He had the ability to just capture people's attentions. But one of the things that he said in one of his letters is that I don't get as much help in books as I do in the place of prayer. That man's ministry, that man's oratory was marked with tremendous power, holy spirit power, God power, as it were. He saw many people saved as a result of his, of his, of his preaching, but what was the power that was behind it? What was it that was behind it? Was it his knowledge of the books? Was it his knowledge of theology? Was it him being able to dot the I's and cross the T's? No, it was the time he spent in prayer that made the difference in that man's ministry. There's a film, I don't know if it's based on a true story, I wouldn't be surprised if it was, called The War Room. Maybe some of you have seen it. Fantastic story. It's this little old black lady who has this room in her house that is dedicated for prayer. And when the situation gets tough and when things seem impossible, she would go to that room and she would agonize and she would pray and she would ask the Lord to intervene. She would say, hear my voice, O God. And if you watch the film, you'll see if God answered, but I'm sure you can guess. This is what we need, brothers and sisters, is we need to be ready to do war and to do it in the place of prayer. David goes on to explain his situation. Preserve my life from the fear of the enemy. Hide me from the secret plots of the wicked, from the rebellion of the workers of iniquity. Now we hear that David do this so often. He then starts to use weapons as illustrations. He says, who sharpen their tongue like a sword, bend their bows to shoot their arrows, bitter words that they may shoot in secret at the blameless. Suddenly they shoot at him, and do not fear. And we see this, do we not, with the world. What the world will do so often is they sharpen their words like a sword to cut us down. They bend their bows to shoot at us their accusations of what the church is. And there is this temptation, you have certainly come across it myself, where people say, especially people who are steeped in the world, they say, well, to be honest with you, I'm rather neutral about the whole situation. I'm not that bothered about God. I, that doesn't describe me. I'm not sharpening my sword against God. I'm not bending my bow against his church. That's not me. I remember speaking to a young man not too long ago. And one of the things was, he said was exactly that. He says, I'm neutral. I'm agnostic about all this. I'm not that bothered. I'm very much on the fence. And I pointed out to him, he says, you see, 
You can't be on the fence. God gave his only son to save you from his sins. You're telling me you're on the fence about that. If I were to say to you, you're dying, you're in a serious condition, but you know what? My son can give his life to save your life. And you were to turn around and say, I'm neutral about that. You'd know for a fact which side of the fence you were really on. You don't care. You don't care that God's only son died in the tree to save you. There's no neutral ground. You're either for or against God. And these men who were chasing David, they were no, there was no neutral ground. They were either for him or against him. Saul's actions made that plain. He said it to Jonathan, his own son. You're for Jesse, the son of Jesse, David. There's no neutral ground. You're either for him or you're against him. And what David is trying to do here with these words, they sharpen their tongue like a sword. They bend their bows to shoot their arrows. Bitter words. As he is describing what's going on in the courts of Saul. There they are. They are conspiring. They're coming up with rumors. They're coming up with things that they can spread about David to make people hate him. Remember, David's a popular individual. He's a, a great general within Israel. They sung songs about him. They need to impact that. They need to get rid of that in order to justify Saul's actions and to justify their future actions. And so they come with a bit of words. They sharpen their tongue. And this is the reality. They want David to be killed. And mark my words, the world out there, they don't want the whole counsel of God preached from this church. It wouldn't matter to them. In fact, there would be in some way a celebration if this church was to close. If there was no longer a gospel witness. Because the reality is that world is against us. We are at war. David was at war. There's no middle ground. But as much as we have to fight the world and the devil, who is the prince of the power of the air, who is controlling those outside, there is also the problem of our flesh. What is in here? The desires of our own hearts, the desire to do our own things, to do it my way. And words are sharp. Words are difficult things to forget. And so brothers and sisters, especially at this moment, what is important is that we have a united front against the enemy. That we know our backs are secure, that we know to the left, to the right of us are secure. And in that place where we are united together in fellowship, we can stand together as one. And say with David as one, hear my voice, O God. In my meditation, hear my voice. Preserve us, Lord. Hide us from the secret plots of the wicked. Save us from the arrows, from the sharpening of the swords. And brothers and sisters, as a united church, the Lord will hear our prayer. 
but there is no doubt there is a deep darkness out there. In verses 5 and 6, which is my second point, in verse 5 we read this, they encourage themselves in an evil matter. Something that I've seen time and time again throughout my life growing up in Glasgow, or just outside of Glasgow in Scotland. I wasn't brought up in the worst of neighborhoods, but it wasn't a great neighborhood. People encouraging others, take this drug, keep drinking that, keep doing this, encouraging evil. Not too long ago, I heard of people encouraging adultery, accepting it as normal, as fine. The world encourages all manner of evil. It's not, it's it's right in front of our faces. You can hardly turn on BBC at this point without seeing evil being encouraged, without it being shown to be good. And it's not because they don't know. I read this the other week there. Proverbs chapter 1. Verses 20 to 22, wisdom calls aloud outside. She raises her voice in the open square. She's not on some back street. She's not whispering. She's calling aloud. She's raised her voice. Wisdom is speaking. She cries out from the chief concourses at the openings of the gates in the city. She speaks her words. How long, you simple ones, will you enjoy simplicity? For scorners delight in their scorning and fools hate knowledge. Or they'd rather encourage themselves in an evil matter. They'd rather do what they've always done and enjoy what they've always enjoyed than deal with God. They talk of laying snares secretly. They say, who will see them? I was at, uh, last weekend, I was at the Prince of Egypt and watching the Prince of Egypt being performed at the Dominion Theatre. It was my 30th birthday present. It's a year late, but we'll forgive Bryony. Pandemic and all the rest of it. We'll, we'll let her off. And one of the songs, it's one of my, I love that, that the film. I love the songs of that film. And there's a number of songs which um, I, I absolutely enjoy. And there was a particular song which was my, my favorite, Through Heaven's Eyes. And it's a wonderful song in talking about how the value of a man is in the eyes of God. You can't find it in what you've built and what you've bought. you You don't lose your value if you lose everything you've ever had. You still have it. It's still there. It's still, you still have value only in the eyes of God, though. You've got to look at your life through heaven's eyes. And as we sat there and listened to it, it was the last song that was played before the interlude, before the halfway stage. And they performed it magnificently. The singing was fantastic. The dancing was phenomenal. It got the message across clear. And as the interlude started, I said to Bryony, isn't it amazing? There's actually very few people in here that understand the profoundness of what they've just heard. Very few of them understand that it's through heaven's eyes that they find their value. The majority of people, if not all of the people there, didn't recognize this. They hate knowledge. They want their own things. They lay snares. They say, who will see them? They devise iniquities. 
we have perfected a shrewd scheme. Both the inward thoughts and the heart of man are deep. There is a a deep darkness in every single one of us. There's a deep darkness out in that world. Throughout this year, I've, I've been reading, I enjoy reading history. I've read a number of books at the beginning of the year. I finished a series of books that were all about Genghis Khan and his sons. I've read several books on the history of Scotland. I've read, I'm reading a book on the history of British slavery. I've read numerous testimonies of Christians that have suffered and died. I'm reading currently on Afghanistan. I'm reading about modern history of Israel. And one of the things that I have seen time and time and time again in reading this history is that man is evil. There is a deep evil within man, within humanity. Let me read to you something or a couple of things in which I have read. A rabbi who survived Auschwitz, he said this, at Auschwitz it was as though there existed another, a world in which all the Ten Commandments were reversed. Thou shalt kill, thou shalt lie, thou shalt steal. Mankind had never seen such a hell on earth. There's a pastor called Richard Wimbrand. He was tortured for his faith, for his belief in God by communists. And he said this, the cruelty of atheism is hard to believe when man has no faith in the reward of good or the punishment of evil. There is no reason to be human. There is no restraint from the depths of evil which is in man. The communist torturers often said, there is no God, no hereafter, no punishment for evil. We can do what we wish. I have heard one torturer even say, I thank God in whom I don't believe that I have lived to this hour when I can express all the evil in my heart. He expressed it an unbelievable brutality and torture inflicted on the prisoners. Man is evil. And the world would say, well, Josh, what you've described there, that, that wouldn't be me. That wouldn't be me. Yet if you read your historians enough, they soon will tell you about the ordinary German who was taken up with the Nazi propaganda. You'll be able to find lives that sound very similar to yourselves. The communists who looked after Romania and Russia and many other Eastern European countries that were under the communist regime, you once again, you'll find many people that resemble yourselves. What you lack is the opportunity, not the ability. There is a deep darkness in all of us. So brothers and sisters, there is a war There's a war of words that is going on. There's a deep darkness out there. There's a deep darkness within yourself. And the reality is, outside of God, there is no hope for us against it. But our psalm continues, and this takes me to my third point, glorious God. And verse 7 begins with these two incredible words. It says, but... God, but God, but God shall shoot at them with an arrow. Suddenly they shall be wounded. 
So he will make them stumble over their own tongue. All who see them flee away. All men shall fear and shall declare the work of God, for they shall wisely consider his doing. God shall shoot at them suddenly with an arrow. All of a sudden, they will be faced with the consequences of a holy and just God. When they weren't expecting it, suddenly God will move. And he will move justly. He will move and it will be their own words that they will stumble over. It will be their own tongue that will trip them up. They will realize that what God has done is just, is right, is correct. I was listening to a Q&A session of a famous atheist. And he was asked, do you not fear hell? And the atheist answered very honestly, more honestly than most, to give him his due. He said, I would fear hell if there was a good God, if there was a just God. Then I would fear hell but I don't believe in that God. But there is coming a day where our glorious God will make it plain. Verse nine, all men shall fear and shall declare the work of God. Everyone. They will see for the first time. They shall wisely consider his doing. For the first time on that day of judgment, they will realize their words and they will stumble over them as they see for the first time that what God is about to do is entirely just, is entirely good, is entirely correct. And God will find glory in dealing justly with those who are his enemies. And this, brothers and sisters, is our hope. Our hope is in God. Verse 10 of our psalm. The righteous shall be glad in the Lord. David is making it clear. The human disaster that is out there, he has put his faith in God. That God would deliver him from this human disaster. And he says, in the better translation of verse 10 would be, the righteous one, singling it out, the righteous one shall be glad in the Lord. That it's, he will be justified. God will justify him in his sight and say, I will be glad in the Lord. I will trust in him and the Lord will deliver me. And this is true of David. But the righteous one also points to someone else. David is a shadow of someone who is to come, who has come for us. That is the Lord Jesus, the greater David. The righteous one will come, will live that perfect life. His name is Jesus. Die the perfect death, and it is in him we trust this evening as Christians. And we are able to say with David, the righteous shall be glad in the Lord. I trust in God and all the upright in heart shall glory. And this is the gospel message this evening. Clear, simple, precise. You're at war with God. There is no neutral ground. This evening, if you do not 
bow the knee to Christ, if you have not accepted his love in your heart, if you have not understood that you're at odds with God, then you will face the wrath of God. Suddenly he will shoot with an arrow and wound you. And on that day, that evil day, you will see that he is right, that God is right. But this evening, I point to you to the cross, to the righteous one, to the Lord Jesus Christ. I ask you, will you pass by? Will you ignore the Son of God? Will you not accept that his wounds were wounds for you? That the price that he paid was for you? And what you will say with all the saints and all the upright in heart shall glory. That is our eternal destination for us who accept what the Lord Jesus did on the cross was done for us. We glory this evening in what he has done. His completed work, his finished work. So brothers and sisters, we must pray. We're at war with this world. We're at war with the devil. We're at war within ourselves, the flesh. We must pray. We must pray united. We must stand shoulder to shoulder and pray against the work of the wicked one. There is a deep darkness out there, a darkness that we cannot even comprehend. It's even within ourselves. But God has made a way that we might be righteous, that we might be glorified and glorify our God. Amen. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your gospel. We thank you that today is still the day of salvation, that you are still willing to hear the cries of one who needs salvation. Lord, I pray that tonight might be the night that someone realizes truly their need for you. Lord, I pray that you will have helped this time to be a time of encouragement, a time of building up, of challenge, yes, but a time to know that it's not in what we do, but in what he has done on the cross. Lord, accept now our sacrifice of praise as we worship you. Amen.
Lord, we thank you for this time together. Lord, we do pray that you will bless us now as we fellowship one with another. Lord, we pray that you will bless this food to our bodies. Help us, Lord, to encourage one another. Lord, we pray in particular for our brother John, and we thank you for him and the blessing that he has been to us here. Lord, we pray that you will be with him as we know you will, because he moves within your will. Lord, we pray that you will be with him as he begins this new chapter in Nottingham. Lord, strengthen him, strengthen that church. And Lord, we look forward to when he comes back to us. Lord, we thank you and praise you for this night, for your word. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. To God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen.